0: The U.S. continues to count the cost of the SVR's successful cyber espionage campaign, attribution, and why it's the TTPs and not the org chart that matters. Emotet makes an unhappy holiday return. It seems unlikely that NSA and U.S. Cyber Command will be separated in the immediate future. Big Tech objects in court to NSO Group and its Pegasus software. Ben Yellen looks at hyperrealistic masks designed to thwart facial recognition software. Our guest Neil Dennis from Cyware wonders if there really isn't a cybersecurity skills gap, and a quick look at some more predictions. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December twenty second, twenty twenty. The SVR cyber espionage reached an email system used by senior officials in the U.S. Department of the Treasury, according to the New York Times. The compromise may not have reached classified networks, and the Treasury Secretary's email is still thought to have gone uncompromised. Microsoft, and not any federal agency, detected the intrusion and warned Treasury. While SolarWinds has attracted most of the odium surrounding the incident, And while the company's Orion platform has clearly been exploited in a software-supply chain compromise, Dark Reading reminds its readers that other avenues of approach through federated authentication systems were also used by the SVR. Some reports suggest that the SVR engaged in some cross-agency collaboration with the FSB, the other KGB descendant in the Russian intelligence community, but the situation remains under investigation. CNBC reports that U.S. Attorney General Barr has joined his cabinet colleague, Secretary of State Pompeo, in attributing the recent cyber-espionage campaign that targeted Solar Wind's users, and others, to Russian intelligence services. He said at a press conference yesterday that the operation certainly appears to be Moscow's work. Perhaps this is as good a time as any for an excursus on nouns, both common and proper. The common nouns first. The word attack has long been casually used for any hostile cyber activity—spying, stalking, theft, data breach, control system interference, and so on. We've on occasion used it that way ourselves. But the Russian cyber espionage campaign the U.S. is now glumly trying to contain, explain, and mop up has prompted a number of writers to call for more precision and circumspection on calling something an attack— after all, espionage attempts, whether successful or unsuccessful, aren't usually called or even thought of as attacks, although they're clearly unwelcome and usually unfriendly. Similarly, disinformation of certain kinds, when it involves denunciation, for example, might be called an attack, but that's pretty clearly metaphorical. In any case, the current activity that's collected against the U.S. government by exploiting the SolarWinds software supply chain and probably other federated authentication systems, has been widely referred to as an attack. However, it's also prompted calls for various forms of retaliation, which has led some to suggest that attack be reserved for activity that's clearly destructive, or at least disruptive, and disruptive in a kinetic sense. While the SVR operation against the U.S. was clearly very serious, indeed, no one probably is yet sure how serious it will turn out to be It also doesn't seem to amount to an act of war. Not the usual espionage, maybe, but the response won't be and shouldn't be Rangers, Marines, and Tomahawks. And now for the proper names. There appears to have been more than one SVR unit involved in the family of cyber espionage activities currently gumming up U.S. networks. A great deal of the coverage, however, has attributed all of it to APT-29, that is, Cozy Bear. A number of threat intelligence types have objected to this. APT-29 is a particular unit of the SVR, or perhaps even better, a specific operational style of the SVR. It's not, properly speaking, an organizational alias of the whole Russian foreign intelligence service. This may seem pedantic so much inside baseball if baseball were played in Yasnevo or at the aquarium or around the Lubyanka, who cares which numbered department of what chief directorate did it? Let the department head save that for their annual reviews. Actually, however, it does matter. Defenders aren't so much interested in who the bad actors are, they're interested in what they do. Different threat groups use different TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures, and the names are keyed to those. Who done it is important, as they say, only if you carry a gun and wear a badge, or, of course, if you're a journalist. So the operation that now requires the U.S. government to demerit its networks isn't all down to APT-29, a point made by people at Dragos and Domain Tools to take just two companies who work in this space. So it's the TTPs, not the org charts, that matter to the typical defender. Now hold on just a minute, Cyberwire, you'll say. You're one of the worst offenders with your liking for those animal names that People at CrowdStrike, among others, like to apply, What's up with that? It's always bears this and pandas that with you guys. What you say is profoundly true, and we asked our editor for an explanation. He argues that the info war value of cute animal names outweighs any potential loss of clarity with respect to TTPs. The Russians absolutely hate, hate being patronized as cuddly and adorable— And he points out that we've generally respected the naming conventions. If Cozy Bear was there, then they were there. And that doesn't exclude any other bears. But here's our way going forward of having our precision and eating the cuteness, too. Henceforth, we'll call any Russian threat actor Huggy Bear, which one of our stringers says is the only name her husband can remember anyway. We're open to suggestions on the rest of the familiar four, Pixie Panda seems like a good one for China, provisionally. Iran? How about Karen Kitten? And we draw a blank on North Korea. We have no idea what counts as cuteness there. So send in your suggestions. Mopping up after the SVR's cyber espionage campaign will be arduous. Security Week quotes Bruce Schneier to the effect that the only way to ensure a network is secure after this kind of breach is to burn it down to the ground and rebuild it. Proofpoint yesterday tweeted that Emotet has returned, evidently in time to catch the tail end of the holiday shopping season. The gang has gone quiet for a short time before the holidays, but is now back in action. Proofpoint says they're seeing 100,000-plus messages in English, German, Spanish, Italian, and more. Lures use thread hijacking with word attachments, password-protected zips, and URLs. It's now thought unlikely, the Washington Post reports, that the long-contemplated, suddenly-invoked separation of U.S. Cyber Command from NSA will happen during the current administration's tenure. Microsoft complained last week that companies like NSO Group amounted to the 21st century equivalents of mercenaries. Yesterday, Redmond put its lawyers where its mouth is. Microsoft, Google, Cisco, and Dell have joined Facebook's lawsuit against NSO Group, Reuters says the companies filed an amicus brief with the U.S. Ninth Circuit yesterday. Before we close out the news, it's time for a quick review of the predictions we're seeing. Essentially, everyone sees ransomware and remote work as trending up during 2021. What about cybersecurity firms considered as investments? Barron's says Cozy Bear's quiet recently discovered but months-long romp through the U.S. government and corporate networks has already led to a market scramble for cybersecurity plays. Market Insider reports that Wedbush is very bullish about the sector's 2021 prospects, expecting a general 20% increase in security spending to drive a perfect storm of demand that will be reflected in significant increases in the sector's valuations. Crunchbase thinks so too. Quote, the cybersecurity market retained investor interest in 2020, and many in the sector expect next year to be no different. End quote. And how have past predictions fared? Security Week looks back a decade at their optimist cybercrime predictions for 2011. The author thinks they were, in general, pretty well borne out. First, awareness is rising. Well, that's been true, and some of that awareness has prompted better security. Quote, Cybersecurity budgets grow year over year, and the conversation today is about the need of having CISOs and CIOs as board members, which would have seemed in 2010 as science fiction, end quote. And there's been a rise in understanding of the attack surface the Internet of Things presents. Greater awareness also seems responsible for the eclipse of hacktivism. It's been a long time since Anonymous, to take one prominent example, has been relevant. Next up, law enforcement is getting better. Better, of course, doesn't mean infallible, but it's difficult not to appreciate the growth and the attention, capabilities, and resources law enforcement agencies have devoted to investigating, stopping, and prosecuting cybercrime. They've also seen success in taking down online criminal markets, including Silk Road, Silk Road 2, Alpha Bay, Hansa, and Wall Street Market. Also on their list, it's getting harder to become a fraudster this is the one prediction that hasn't been borne out. The criminals react, and the increasing commodification of attack tools, the growth of affiliate schemes, more sophisticated and plausible social engineering, and the resilience of criminal-to-criminal markets, sometimes abetted by state actors, have combined to keep fraud thriving. So, as Meatloaf would put it, two out of three ain't bad. Many lists of predictions for the coming year include the cybersecurity skills gap as a continuing issue for the industry. But is it? Neil Dennis is a senior intel analyst with Cyware, and he has his doubts.
1: There's an unfortunate focus, I think, on how they approach the training and how they they look at what they're doing with the people that they currently have on staff. We, We do see it an uptick. So to be fair, before I go down this rabbit hole, there is an uptick in companies that are understanding that they need to help with this this supposed gap, right? There's, there's a decent amount of people coming online that know they need to take the time to train, provide for, and hopefully maintain their current staff instead of having them leave every six months and having to find new people. But that being said, the vast majority, if they have anything, it, it's at the most, it might be a tuition reimbursement kind of concept. And it doesn't really... Give that, that person who's spending 45 plus, maybe 60 hours a week in that security environment already overworked, as not provide for them with the actual support to go out and take advantage of that fund, right? They make them take their own time off. They make them, you know, under the old auspice, if you really want to do it, you'll show interest in it and, and utilize your own personal time to make yourself better for the company. And maybe 15, 20 years ago, that was a good way to do it. But with how exhausting and how overworked these people are to begin with, those two weeks of PTO they might get are going to be spent on actual PTO. You know, only, only a very small group of people are going to go home after being burnt out all day and pick up a computer and go read on how to be better at that role. Um, it's just a lot of people get in, especially in a sock environment. They see it. They want to be done with it when they go home, play some video games, maybe have too mm. many things to drink and be done.
0: Um, <laughs> what about um, sort of looking within, you know, that you might have folks in other areas of your company who already know the company culture, they may know all the players. Uh, it seems to me like they'd be good candidates to cross-train and, and uh, you could get them up to speed maybe quickly.
1: Oh, definitely. And we kind of see this a little bit with uh, like IT staff, like the actual cable pullers and the install guys who come to their You know, put your desktop in and run cables and do the network engineering stuff. We do kind of see a little bit of that where those individuals kind of try to cross train in. Uh, some companies support that to varying degrees, but from a cultural perspective, that, that's a great point. There, there's an unintentional barrier, I think, um, around perception that cybersecurity as a whole is something hard to get into. And in reality, the right persona and It doesn't take a whole lot for a couple of grand that the company could put out there for someone to go get something as basic as like security plus. And for a couple of grand in a week, you could take someone who was sitting in accounting and have them now be able to come in in a kind of junior slash almost intern perception role into the cybersecurity org. And as long as you continue to invest in that person and pay attention to the fact that they're new. They're gonna need some coaching, some couching in through all this stuff. You can have some really good homegrown people in your org come over to the cybersecurity side of the house. We have to break down those barriers to entry. You have to break down the walls and the perception that this is hard to do. And, and just you know put a couple of bucks out there on the table and help motivate your team to do this.
0: That's Neil Dennis from Cyware. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, great to talk to you. Good to be with you again, Dave. Uh, this is an interesting one uh, from Reuters. And um, the title of the article is Wearing Someone Else's Face. Hyperrealistic masks to go on sale in Japan. Of course. <laughs> describe to us what's going on here.
2: So first of all, uh, you have to—anybody listening to this has to actually go to the article and see the pictures here. Um, These masks are incredibly creepy in how realistic they are uh, in terms of portraying somebody else's face. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is just kind of an entrepreneur, owner of a mask shop. Um, His name is Shuhei Okawara, uh, and he is crafting masks that are based off real persons' faces— yeah. Um, they're intended to provide the same sort of protection as a standard mask uh, to protect against uh, COVID. It's, uh, you know, quite a addition to the type of mask entre- entrepreneurship that we've seen over the past nine months. Um, these are not going to be cheap. Uh, to purchase one of these hyper-realistic masks, you would have to pay 98,000 yen, which isn't as much as it seems. It's about nine hundred and fifty dollars it's yeah,
0: still, still a, still a very hefty price for a mask.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was able to get, you know, six masks for $5 at a, at the convenience store. So. Right,
0: right. Um, but the
2: point of these is? The point of these is that you can disguise yourself and make yourself into a dis- different person entirely. Uh, right. And that's why the demand for these masks so far has been surprisingly strong. Uh, what's interesting in our context is how would this work with something like facial recognition? What I right. want to know is, is Mr. Okawara good enough at crafting these masks that it could trick a facial recognition system? Um, yeah. Having seen these pictures, my prediction is yes, he probably could. Um, but I, I am not entirely sure about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are so so what he did was he uh he chose a model and he paid the model to use their likeness to make these hype, this hyper-realistic mask. And now he's made several different versions uh, since his initial one. Um, So the interesting thing here is if I'm walking down the street and I have this mask on that, as we say, is a hyper-realistic version of that model, am I going to get tagged as that person while I'm walking down the street? Is it, is it, is it realistic enough? And boy, it's hard to think that it's not.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you have to see it to believe it, but if you look at the pictures, I mean, just the finite details in terms of, like, uh, facial marks, freckles, like, uh, the sculpting and shape of the eyebrows and the nose, like, right. it's it's something that is, you know, to be honest, going to give me nightmares in terms of how realistic <laughs> it is. But.
0: But you know what? I mean, you and I have talked about this on on Caveat and maybe here, and this was certainly in the pre-pandemic days, about whether or not it's legal to simply walk down the street wearing a mask or not. And it's not always—pre-COVID, it was not always legal to walk down the street wearing a mask, to hide your identity.
2: No, it's not. I mean, I don't think this is something where there's—A, it's not going to be a broad problem because— You know, even in Japan, we're still talking about a limited number of these masks that are getting sold, although demand is particularly high. Um, So, yeah, there are some uh, regulations uh, and laws about concealing yourself in public. Um, I'm curious as to as facial recognition develops and becomes more accurate, whether we're going to have laws that prevent this type of behavior where the purpose of uh, a face covering is to disguise your facial features to evade detection from a facial recognition system. So mm-hmm. you'd have to add sort of a uh, criminal intent requirement to that type of statute where you're actually purposefully changing the contours of your face to avoid detection. Um, and maybe this is kind of the first salvo in in that battle.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, talk about your slippery slope here because... You know, what if I wear loose-fitting clothes to hide my physique, or what if I wear uncomfortable shoes to hide my my gait? You know, what if I what if I put on a false mustache or beard or a wig, or you know, like you see uh, where a you are marks, uh, right. <laughs> well, Eyeglasses, and mustache. Start, yeah. Yeah, if you start legisla— and I, yes, I suppose uh, putting a, a facial covering on that looks like a different person is a little different than those things. But but is it? Is it? Is it really? It, it, I guess. What we're getting, the, the root of what we're talking about here is, is it within our right to try to protect our privacy against automated fa- facial recognition scanning? Right, yeah, That's the I, crux of the question. It is.
2: And I don't know. I, I think the slippery slope is a problem to the extent that I don't know that we can properly answer that question at this point. Mm, yeah. um, because as you say, you know, these masks are highly accurate, disturbingly accurate – but if you start to outlaw masks like this, you know, what happens to less accurate disguises or somebody who likes to put on a lot of makeup that, you know, might conceal some of their facial features.
0: Right, uh, right.
2: You know, or face coverings in a non-COVID era for people who just want to protect themselves from the cold or something.
0: Yeah, um, yeah I want to walk around in my stormtrooper helmet, you know.
2: I mean, you've been known to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... I don't think we're at the point yet where we're going to start to criminalize this type of behavior, probably because of these exact reasons.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, it's an interesting development. Uh, one of those. It's one of those fun stories that, that I think leads to some more interesting issues and, and conversations. So for that, uh, I'm thankful for this coverage.
2: Absolutely. And make sure you check out these pictures because they are a sight to be seen.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Guru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Carrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.